All right. You're going to hear three sermons this morning. (laughs) Buckle up, buttercup. Actually, we're actually heading into a synagogue um, in Pisidian Antioch. And what was normal for the synagogue relationships or the synagogue service was there was the reading of the word and then there was uh, sermons. So, you know, culturally speaking, we're kind of wimpy uh, on this one. But I'm wimpy with you, so I, when I say we're having three sermons this morning, um, it's what uh, I think, Springer, you can help me if I'm wrong, this is a meta situation uh, where, um, thank you, young people, young people, thank you, because um, this is a sermon about two sermons. That's the meta part. Is that good? I did it right? Yes. Um, it's two sermons by Paul and Barnabas um, as they preached a two-week series at Pisidian Antioch, or at Antioch um, in the synagogue. And now this isn't the same Antioch from whence they came, which is where they started. It's, it's a different Antioch, and by the way, Antioch, like, I think there were 17 Antiochs at the time. So this is uh, further away. It's uh, probably 250, 300 miles as the crow flies, but that's not the best way to get there. So it's probably like more of like a 600-mile 600 journey uh, on water for most of it to get up there to where you have it. And it's also 3,600 uh, miles higher, or miles, feet higher than, um, than where they're used to. Um, and so it's a big trek to get there. It's kind, of the, it's kind of the the furthest point or close to the furthest point of the first missionary journey. So, um, but when, you, when, when you're trained these days on a sermon, you're supposed to have a good bit of the, what they call explanation or explanation of the text. Like you want to make sure people understand what's going on in the passage. And then what you also try to do is give some form of illustration like okay what what, let me help you understand this by and then you're supposed to do a good chunk of application like how does this fit into the world and definitely in this passage um, uh, Paul and Barnabas do this and so we're gonna kind of work from that framework and go from there and it's probably best if you keep your um, keep your uh, bulletins handy because I'm not gonna read through it all Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of comment and give explanation and illustration as we go. And then my hope is to do the application at the end. So, verse 15 starts with, after the reading of the law and the prophets, Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, gotta love that, that's a good preacher move too, come, 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 come with me. They show up at this local synagogue, which was their practice and continues to be their practice after this, uh, and they join them for worship. And so these services have a time when the priest reads the, the, the Law and the Prophets, or the Old Testament as we call it, uh, and, give an ex- and then others come and give an explanation of the Scriptures, which we now call a sermon. Uh, literally, a lot of modern worship services are based on synagogue worship. Well, Peter gets to start to preach, 
It seems like the synagogue leaders have like been, at least a, a number of them, been excited to have him come and um, hear about what's been going on. Saul's from about 200 miles away, um, and, or Saul Paul is about 200 miles away, so he could have easily been known. He was, a, he was a, a, an important leader. Uh, so they encourage him to bring his reflections upon the Scripture. So he motions them to pay attention. And he says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. It's important because he speaks to his brothers and sisters ethnically, the Jews and the Jewish family, and he says, this is important, but, but, but he also is speaking to what, are, what he calls those who fear God, or others call the God-fearers, which were non-ethnically Jewish people who were like super interested in what's going on in this kind of quirky, smaller, strange community. And they've been enthralled by the stories of of creation and Abraham and David or Moses in there. And, 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 and they're really interested in this. So we need to kind of get in our time machine a bit and, and try to listen to Paul's sermon and this sermon and the other two sermons as if, if, as if either we were lifelong Jewish religious people who've been going to synagogue every week as long as we can remember. Or that we're kind of an outsider to the Jewish culture, but have been enthralled by the beauty of the stories of Yahweh and what's been going on in the world. And you're just so thankful that this little community that seems a little bit tight at times lets you even come in and listen to this kind of stuff. You get to participate in some way. And so then after that address, Paul begins the sermon and he says, the God of Israel, this is verse 17, the God of Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Now, their stay in the land of Egypt means enslaved. So it wasn't like vacation in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. So he doesn't really start at the beginning of, like, at creation, but he starts with the most monumental story of the Law and the Prophets, or the Old Testament gospel, if you will. He starts with the greatest miracle that occurs there, and he says that God, Yahweh, the, the, the father of, of, of our, uh, our father, the father of our fathers, came and he rescued an enslaved people for uh, 400 years who he'd bring out and make strong and promise to redeem. He continues, for about 40 years, and I love this, this is verse 18, he put up with them in the wilderness. <laughs> you got to love 40 years in a short verse. And the, the entire 40 years where he put up with, my favorite translation of that is, suffers the manner of. He suffered the manner of his people. Um, and all their grumbling against its desert conditions, which were not nice, its food issues, which were provision, certainly one filet mignon every day. There isn't even a rebellion against Moses. There was a point in which God's people, his own people, he would say, created a golden calf to worship God. But in that time, God suffers the manner of this ungrateful people who've been redeemed from slavery of 400 years and have these 40 years of difficulty but redemption. And this, this shows us a couple things. It shows us the manner of all of us who can be um, too bent 
toward arrogance and folly and ingratitude. We're not really different than them, than they. At least I can say I'm not different, but I have suspicions suspicions about you as well. But it doesn't just show who we are. It shows who God is and his character. His mercy and grace, at grace cost to himself, suffers the manner of. And most importantly, his unwavering resolve to create a new people marked by redemption, forgiveness, and power. He suffers the manner of those he loves, which is the only way to love somebody. You ain't loving anybody unless you suffer the manner of them. But that doesn't change his love and determination to keep loving us and working his plan of redemption throughout history. Well, Paul continues in what we call redemptive history, and in verse 19 he says, After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, this is, uh, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So now Paul covers 450 years in two verses. He gave them the land, cleared it out for them so that they would be a people that received God's blessing. But the original promise isn't just to receive that God's blessing and learn to live in the righteousness of the goodness that he's given us, his law that has been given to us um, out of love, but also then to be a blessing to all the nations. And he gave them this piece of land that was at the crossroads of many, many, many peoples that would run back and forth. What he was saying is, I've made you a people to be transformed by God's grace into faithful servants of all. Paul resumes the sweeping story of God's work in the world, what we often call redemptive history, and he says in verse 21, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul for 40 years. And when God had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king. I have found David a man after my heart, in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, in these three pithy verses, Paul covers a thousand years of Jewish kings. He starts first with Saul, which the irony of this must have been amazing because everybody locally would have still called him Saul. The namesake of the first king of Israel, Saul, is now talking about Saul and putting him in context to the rest of those who could hear it. And that didn't work out. Tragic story. For Samuel's really helpful for that. Other places are really helpful for that. But then Paul pivots to the second king, David, a man who was after God's own heart, who also everybody also knew full well that David was a man of God's own heart and also a murderer, a liar, and someone who forced someone else into adultery. There's a term for that, but we have mixed company. So neither the first nor the second, which is the best king, would be the one. Nor would any of the 40 others that he just passes through very quickly, both on both sides of Israel, of the divided kingdom, part of another story. And it's all because God's mercy and resolve does not end. Which is why he sends Jesus to be the new king, David's greater son, 
to reign as king in a very different way. Jesus, the one who perfectly, consistently, and never didn't be the one after God's own heart. Jesus, who he calls the Savior and the King. Paul gives a little background to to, to information that they would already know about this guy named John, verse 24. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance, which is not a Christian baptism, but is baptism for Israel to repent all over the place to the people of Israel. And John was a prophet, he wasn't a priest, but he was the forerunner um, of the spiritual opening act or hype man for Jesus. He was super popular among the people and super not popular among the religious leaders. And, but he was so popular among the religious people, people got confused. Are you the one? John said, who do you suppose that I am? Verse 25. Behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. I am not even good enough to be a slave to this one. Paul pivots here and begins application. He's explained all of redemptive history in a few verses. And he pivots. And he says in verse 26, Sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who are God-fearers, those among you who fear God, To us, me, Barnabas, and the crew, has been sent a message of salvation, the message of salvation. And he says the Jerusalem rulers didn't recognize Jesus nor understand the prophets that they read every Sabbath. So they ended up fulfilling the prophets by condemning Jesus. And this is what I read to the kids, starting in verse 28. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate or Rome to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of the hymn, when they carried out God's plan for this, they laid him in a tomb. Verse 30. This occurs in Scripture all over the place. Really important two words. But... God. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now, like Barnabas over here, his witnesses to the people. Paul is saying we are speaking by the authority of God. But it's not just a dictate alone that we ask you to yield your need to, though we do, but it is from our experience of the Spirit of God who's done all these things. Everybody knows who Saul is. And he's saying, I was a murderer against the people and an adversary to the message of the good news. And now I'm preaching that very good news I opposed. Jesus blinded me on the road to Damascus so I could see all of this. And now I'm here to tell you to bring this message of salvation. God's glorious design from the world, from the get, for people like me and like you, all y'all in the room, 
You see, Paul says, our people did it again. I did it again. We rebelled this time in violence against God's king. And he took it all, all the rage, all the sin, all the rebellion. He took it into his body and died. But God raised him from the dead. He is the resurrected king, like no other king. And this is the message we have been given to proclaim. Y'all, there's 50 days of Easter. We're still in Easter time. Easter's longer than any other season besides ordinary. But that's okay. That makes sense too, by the way. In verse 32, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this has been fulfilled by raising Jesus. And then he says, if you don't trust our experience and you're here for the law and the prophets, the Old Testament reading of, of God, the very scriptures that you come to every week, you can learn from them and hear the same thing. As it is written in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. They don't fit to David. As for the fact that, verse 34, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, Isaiah 55. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption, Psalm 16. And then he explains it. For, for David, after he had served the purposes of God, fell asleep and, 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 and lay with his fathers and saw corruption, meaning his body decayed. But who God raised from the dead, he saw no corruption. And then he moves into deep application and gives the clear, what do I do now in relationship to the explanation of all the scriptures he's given. And he says, let it be known. This is like what I do at a wedding. Let it be known from this day forward that this man and woman are joined together. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone, by which he also means anyone who believes, is freed from everything which could not be freed by the law of Moses. Y'all, we got to take this in. Paul says that Jesus, the long-awaited king, was raised from the dead. And that reality ushers in a new world and a new king and a new kingdom. And this, this, this king creates a new people who live by a new way, which is the forgiveness of sin, which is the power to live. Yes, even my murderous sin, he's saying. And Barnabas' self-righteous sin. By the way, I have my own self-righteous sin too, basically Saul's saying. We love the law, but the law cannot bring life. The law was a good gift to his people. But then we used it and got all wonky with it instead of actually relying on the mercy of God to live in the world. Only the resurrection of Jesus brings the life and forgiveness and grace that we need that empowers our lives together. Without the law, the law just, without Jesus, the law just crushes us. But with Jesus, we're forgiven of the consequences of breaching the law, and now we can lean into it as something that doesn't own us. And so Paul pivots again 
and moves to a different set of application, not just the broad application to all who would come, but he gives a very specific application to those in the room that might be, might be fallen into old patterns. And he says, beware, therefore, lest what is said and the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in our days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you, which is kind of a mashup of, of mostly Habakkuk and a little Isaiah in there. See, Paul understands the prophets better than they do, and he understands the prophets better than we do. He says, beware. Don't be on the wrong side of the prophets like we've been doing over and over and over again. Don't do like we did. Don't do like I did. And our people have always done. Don't add another chapter of our history by missing what God's doing in the world. Instead, let it astound you and perish of the ways you're conceiving wrongly about how God's working in the world. Instead, give up this cliched way of turning away from the word of God and enter in. Yes, I know it's too good to be true, but I just told you the whole story that that's kind of God's gig. He likes to make it too good to be true. It is too good to be true, and it's true. So lean into that. Let it dismantle all our worldviews and earthly strivings to control and manage our lives. All of that stuff leads to death. Instead, put your trust in the one who conquered death, and you will live in freedom and joy and peace. And that's the end of the first sermon. Which then, what happens when the service is over? What Paul experiences is what every guest preacher experiences. Man, that's the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life. Now, not to mention, we picked from our entire canon of sermons to come as a guest preacher to do it. But that's what happens. And they're like, man, you know, our preacher, he like, you know, I mean, every once in a while stumbles into a really great sermon. But if we had this guy, I'm sure he does that every week. Deliver, deliver, deliver. Right? It's not actually what the passage says. It says, and they went out and the people begged that these things might be told to them again the next Sabbath. But that's my interpretation of that. So they're in the vestibule or the narthex or just the parking lot. And Paul and Barnabas are inundated with more people going, come on back, come on back. You've done revival now, you can be our permanent preacher now. And they respond in such a beautiful way. After it all broke up, many Jews and, and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas into the parking lot. And they spoke with them. And what they did is urge them to continue in the grace of God. They didn't make it about themselves. Paul and Barnabas orient them not to him, but to the power and beauty of the gospel of Jesus. So next week's sermon, different, different context. The previous week, the church leaders were curious and were like, oh, you can be one of the preachers on synagogue, uh, at synagogue. This week is different. Two things are happening. First, in verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Deacons were undone at this point, I'm sure. Now the word spread. And Antioch showed up, Antioch strong. 
Now, we need to know that the majority of people in Pisidian Antioch weren't Jews. So this was like, uh-oh, who invited these guys to, family, to the family reunion, right? So what happened is that the, that the Gentiles realized they weren't just the sideshow of redemption. They weren't the marginalized people. They were actually s- central, focal point of the end, the goal of redemption. And they're giddy. People are like, holy moly, which is in the Greek. Could it be true that this Jewish God sent his only son to rescue us too? So Antioch shows up. But no good good news goes unpunished. And so part of the Jewish leadership got jealous. It says, but when the Jews, verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict them and then ended up reviling them. The free grace of God, the forgiveness of our most shaming and regretful sins is absolutely offensive to anyone who doesn't think they need it. And yet the, words, the, the, the leaders weren't just worried about that. They were worried about their position and their control and their power, and we'll see it played out. It's an old temptation for all of us, and yet they succumb to it. And then that thing that happens in all of us, jealousy, words of contradiction, and reviling occurred. Have you ever been the recipient of jealousy, a self-protective counter-narrative to reality, or just pain reviling? Have you ever done those things? And the answer to that question is yes. You have. And we have been both. And what the apostles do when they start their next sermon are saying, we don't need any more jealousy in the world. We don't need any more outrage. We don't need any more disinformation about what's really going on. We don't need any more self-protection. And we are sure as hell exists, and I mean that most profound and theological way, we don't need any more reviling among us or in us or towards others or towards us. And so they go directly after the jealous revilers. And you know he's not talking to all the Jews when he says Jews because some of them have just come and, and come to him. It's, 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 it's a very specific subset of that. And in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, In other words, inadequate of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord commanded us, pushes back to Isaiah and says, For the Lord commanded us, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The only reason we were ever a blessed people was to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. This is still plan A for God. 
And he's pleading with them, y'all are doing it again. I know I did it, but stop. Instead of humbly submitting to what God is doing in this, in this day, in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, stop, yield. Release your power and control and understanding that you have. Because what, what you're doing is not just missing on the work of the Spirit. You're thrusting aside. You're disqualifying yourselves. Because the only qualification, or the only disqualification uh, from the good news and the forgiveness of God is if you don't think you need it. And he's like, I understand. It's going to blow everything up in your world. Yes, it is too much for you to handle, so stop handling it. They're like, we aren't we're even mad. But God's mission requires us to turn another way. We cannot piddle around with this because the whole import of the story is to the ends of the earth. Second sermon done. The hearers respond in two very clear and distinct ways. Utter delight or utter rejection. Utter delight. When the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many were, as were appointed to, the, to eternal life believed. The Lord, word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. Could you imagine that service moment? When all of Pisidian Antioch's there, and this little nestled group of Jewish leaders are like, uh, what just happened? And why are they all hooting and hollering? And then there's utter rejection. But the Jews, obviously a very small portion of the leadership of the Jews, incited the, the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. Utter delight, utter rejection. So to end all three of these sermons, just want to give you some reflections. It does seem that there are only two reactions, delight or rejection. And when you experience that delight, that God has provided mercy for your most desperate need, the fact that he would provide mercy for the most desperate need of your neighbor is just delight. There's no jealousy involved. But if you don't believe the gospel applies, either whether it's I'm doing pretty well on my own, I don't really think I need this thing, or there's got to be something that I'm doing right or my neighbor's doing wrong that's the actual disqualifying reality, that's when you reject. And both are folly. And the non-need for the gospel can show up in both religious and non-religious people. From our non-religious friends, you may be experiencing, sure, I, I, like I get it, others might need this crutch, but I've got this. And I would say to you, beware. You might be revealing that you actually think that you're better than the majority of the people on earth. And you're probably revealing, if we asked all your closest friends, that you think you're better than you actually are. Another response, I don't need all this negativity in my life. 
And I completely get that. Look, I would say beware. You're right first. Admitting all of your yuck and all the yuck done to you to someone or to some community is absolutely senseless unless there is one who's seen all that you've done and still loves you and forgives you and invites you in and wants to transform you into a new human. And others might be going, just leave it alone. I'm just trying to be a good person. And I would say to you, what if you could be not a good person, but a new person? Healed from the inside out. And of course, you've got to be careful because when you define good person, we humans tend to draw those lines in ways that we end up one of them. Or we draw them in lines that we could never be one of them. Now, for religious people, it gets a little trickier, a little sneakier about it, especially for those who actually have experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and tasted of his new life. But it looks like for us a kind of jealousy within someone's being blessed in a way that we are not. Because we're somewhere in there is this kind of merit thing going on. It looks like feeling too scared or shamed to just admit our brokenness sometimes even before God, and certainly oftentimes between, uh, among our neighbors or our friends. It looks like feeling offended by those people over there who haven't played by the rules, haven't done what it's right, and they still receive the mercy. It looks like often, for me, a fear of losing control and creating a hermetically sealed life that no one knows, or a worldview, a theology that no one can touch, even the very word of God. And we could ask all our non-believing friends, it looks like judginess. And the judgy has two sides. It self-whispers, I would never do or be anything like that. Or it goes, I am completely disqualified, not because of my belief, but because of how wretched I am. I could never, he could never forgive me. And yet, for all of us, the solution is the same. Turn from the lies that we believe. Rest in the freedom that the God of the universe is more resolute in his love for us than we are resolute to hang on. He sent his, his son to receive all of our guilt and shame. He raised him from the dead as the king of a new people who get to live a profoundly new life, even though we're back and forth on it at times. One marked by that very power of the resurrection and a life of mercy that forgives our sin, abates our shame so that we can forgive the sin done against us and abate the shame of the sinner who's experiencing it. And then the Christian life is just recycle and repeat. Because there are days where the brokenness of the world or the brokenness of our own hearts will tempt us to believe that it is all a myth. 
It is not a myth. It is true. It just has mythic proportions. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us here. Remind us again in these two sermons what is true. Help us delight like the Gentiles. Help us resist the temptation of the Jewish leaders that are jealous and want to revile. And by your Spirit, transform us more and more after your image. We pray. Amen.